Hey, Daily Journal podcast fans, this is Brian Cardell, host of the Weekly Appellate Report, our weekly roundup of appellate and constitutional law issues, airing each Friday. I'm here just very briefly to introduce the second episode of the newest edition to the Daily Journal podcast family. It's a show called Let's Talk About Something Else, and it features a conversation between two of our state's prominent legal figures. On it, Jeff Bleich, a partner with the Denton's Law Firm in San Francisco and formerly U.S. Ambassador to Australia, chats with sitting California Northern District Judge James Donato. In this episode, the two discuss a handful of topics. They tackle the president's recent reference to Judge Donato's Northern District colleague, Judge John Tigar, as an Obama judge. A reference, of course, suggesting that Judge Tigar's adverse ruling in an immigration matter was politically motivated, at least in part. That not terribly subtle inference elicited a rare public rebuke from the typically taciturn Chief Justice John Roberts. Judge Donato and Ambassador Blyce share some interesting thoughts as to that conspicuous tete-a-tete between the heads of two of our governmental branches. We'll talk also about an assertion level last week by media mogul Jay-Z that private arbitration fora are woefully lacking in African-American neutrals. And apropos of the upcoming holiday, the two discuss both privacy and antitrust concerns related to the various virtual assistants that may be on your shopping list this December. Okay, that's enough preamble for me. It's my pleasure to introduce the judge and the ambassador, and I'll speak with you again when a new weekly appellate report airs this Friday. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I can think of no better way than spending the day with my good friend, uh, Jeff Bleich, who, uh, as many of you know, who are joining us today, former ambassador on behalf of our country to uh, the Commonwealth of Australia, and uh, also a former State Bar President. I'm just sifting through the many accomplishments and picking the highlights (laughs) for Jeff. Uh, Those are two, and uh, he's still, of course, a practicing lawyer here in San Francisco as well. And I could think of no better way to spend the morning than with uh, Judge Donato um, of the Northern District Court, U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, and also a uh, uh, he is the, the Judge Judy of podcasts, except he makes $147 million less per year. And, uh, uh, and, and also, you've got a new title this week. You are an Obama judge. Oh, <laughs> well... You've come out blazing. Uh, yes, that that, uh, that phrase has been in the news from the very top, from our uh, president, no less. What do you think about that, Jeff? What is an Obama judge? Well, you know, so so we could riff on that or we could do the serious version. But the, the so the serious version is there is no such thing as an Obama judge. Um, there are judges appointed by presidents. Uh, uh, well, nominated. Like, nominated, nominated by... Nominated. Well, nominated and then confirmed by the Senate, yes. and uh, they, whatever whatever their political party was or their persuasion or the party of the president, once you put on a black robe, you're a judge, and that has been our tradition, and that has been the way in which the uh, courts have generally conducted themselves, with rare rare exception. No, in fact, uh, the origins of the black robe are not entirely certain, but it's precisely to that point that. When you put on the robe, you do three things. One, you announce that you are separate and apart from everybody else in the courtroom. That's an important role. Two, you're wearing uh, the least colorful and interesting, (laughs) visually interesting thing you can because it's not about you. It's about the rule of law and the administration of justice. And the third thing is it literally and figuratively covers up who you are as a person and put you into the mindset and the public role and private role of being an adjudicator. So that's an important thing. Yeah. Now, I, the reason I jumped on you for the uh, appointment versus nominated is because there are presidential appointments. You were, you were uh, 
in government before, uh, you had a role with the Clinton administration, and that was when President Clinton made that decision on his own. He was free to do that. He didn't have to ask anybody. Nominations, such as the one I and every federal judge has, and ambassadors such as you have, are different because it has to be confirmed by the Senate. So by the time you get through that whole process, it is a bipartisan vote. So, so let me push back for Don't a second, though. Well, let me, let me push back, because I think that is true. On the other hand, we've had a, uh, a shift in people's thinking about the courts, and that's because uh, there is a sense that the confirmation process has become much more politically partisan than it ever was before. You had Judge Merrick Garland held up for no reason other than the fact that there was the capacity of um, uh, one party to hold up his nomination in the hopes that they would win a presidential election and be able to pick someone else. And likewise, I think there was a sense that there was— Can I just jump in? Now, you say that about uh, Judge Garland uh, because there was no question he was qualified. It was not—nobody in their right mind, and I I think both both everybody involved owned up to this— Nobody in their right mind would say he, he wasn't up to the job. Yeah. Okay, so when you eliminate that, what's left is the explanation for why he didn't go forward. So in other words, yeah. you're not just being cynical. I mean, this is yeah. an exercise in cold logic. Yes. <laughs> that's the only kind of exercise to, to, I get these days. To the extent you <laughs> that's can do why, that. Yes. That's why we're yes. wearing loose-fitting clothes. Right. Um, we. <laughs> well, you always do. That's true. Um, but you're right. Look, there are no red robes and blue robes. There are only... Um, black robes for a reason, and that is the judges are supposed to uh, check their politics at the door, and in selecting them, we've always counted on the on the Senate generally to to do the same thing, to pick people, even if they didn't agree with their judicial philosophy, as long as they're qualified to do the job and would do it consistent with the Constitution of the United States. And now, I think part of the reason that the president felt free to try and create that distinction is because seeds of doubt have been sown in the public's mind. I want to uh, introduce you to the concept of the bell curve. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> and I can add to, thank you very much, All right. <laughs> Judge Donato. Uh, yes. it, it, it builds on your point. There, there was a time, until quite recently, uh, maybe within the last 15, 20 years, when, uh, exactly as you say, uh, regardless of who the nominating president was and, and who the majority was in the Senate, if you were in that great midsection of the bell curve, meaning you, you had the chops to do the job, you had the experience, you had the temperament, you were going to get in, even if you weren't necessarily reflective of whoever was voting on your confirmation at the Senate. I think part of the problem, and I think you're alluding to this, is we're starting to see candidates now on the farther edges of the bell curve. They're no longer in that sweet spot middle, which is most of us. I mean, that's, that's by far most people. So I'll give you one example. Uh, the guy in, I think it's South Carolina, uh, Thomas Farr, whose uh, nomination, I think, was effectively scuttled this week when uh, the lone African-American Republican senator uh, announced that he, along with Jeff Flake, would not, and I think maybe one other one, would not be voting for him. Uh, based on, now I don't know, but the record appeared uh, from public sources at least to raise some very serious questions uh, about his uh, temperament and judgment with respect to uh, access to uh, voting rights uh, by African Americans and other disfavored uh, uh, populations, and maybe a little bit of advocacy on his end, or maybe even a lot of advocacy on his end against a free, equal, one-person, one-vote approach to life. So, uh, but my point is, I, I think 
we have seen more candidates, particularly recently, outside of the media. And, and maybe yeah. that's why. I, I, I think that's fair. If you look back, for example, uh, when Antonin Scalia was nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court, he, he was confirmed 99 to 1. Or, oh, I had forgotten that. Yeah. So yeah who yeah. was the one? I'd say it might have been 99-0. I think just one didn't vote. I, I, think, I think it may have been a unanimous right. confirmation, even though he had very far-right views. And I think the reason was the standards you were describing. Well, but he had um, been on the, um, was he on the D.C. circuit? He was on D.C. circuit. Yeah, so he already had a track record, though. Yeah, I mean. so he, and he was, he was fairly, yeah, he, he, was, he was a very strong conservative, but he wasn't, um, I, people didn't have concerns that he was a racist. See, that's the thing. So, so I actually would put, I think Scalia is a perfect illustration of what you were saying, which is maybe if you were a, a Democrat or a progressive, uh, you wouldn't find him to be to your, ta- to your taste. Mm-hmm. But there was no question he could do the job. There was no question he had a good temperament for it. There was no question that he would be faithful to at least his view of, of the law. And he had none of this extra baggage. He wasn't pulling a wagon train of, you know, racism, sexism, skeletons, whatever the various problems people have had. Yeah. So he, in my view, fits in the middle. Um, yeah. Well, he, he fits in the he, he, he fits in the thick part of the bell curve. Yeah. The bell part. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's why I asked you if you're familiar with the Constitution. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can make it easier. It's like a box. You want to talk for, about? Yeah. For those for those who who can't actually see us recording this podcast, uh, Judge Donato kindly drew a bell for me so I'd know what a bell looked like. Well, I did that because you preface that by saying for those who can't, no one can see us doing the podcast. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well. Okay. Know. Well, God can. <laughs> <laughs> watching us right, one, one. and saying this is why you're getting paid what you get paid and why Judge Judy gets $147 million a year. <laughs> one controversial topic at a time. Okay. All right, but I, I will say, and, and I hope, uh, I hope uh, our country takes us to heart, I think most people do who know, uh, as someone who lives and works every day in uh, the chambers of the district courts and knows a, uh, just a number of judges across the country, state and federal, as you do, I know firsthand, firsthand, from, from long and direct experience, everybody rises to the occasion of putting aside their personal biases as much as they possibly can to do three things. Be fair to all parties, treat everybody equally under the law, and respect the fact that there is an independence of the judiciary that has to be uh, uh, realized every day or it will be lost. So. I think it's a great thing, and I think the judges, uh, we know we're a highly motivated core of people. Uh, most of us have made a sacrifice to be here, financially or otherwise, as you're pointing out. And I think we honor that by being as true as we can to the fair administration of justice. Don't you think? Um, yeah, and, and look, I take you a... Well, that was a cynical <laughs> I would take a bigger step back oh. and just say... All right. Um, this, the, the, uh, uh, although we've been talking about it in a jocular way... The notion that there are different kinds of judges and that how you will be judged depends upon who appointed the person in the black robe when you enter their courtroom is extraordinarily dangerous for a democracy. Um, the, the, the third branch, the judiciary, doesn't have a standing army, doesn't have the power of the purse, doesn't now have— Now you're quoting Stalin. 
That was that was uh, Stalin's uh, response to, uh, at one point during the war when he was told that the Catholic Church uh, opposed uh, some of the things that the Soviet Army was doing. His response was, "Well, how many divisions does the Pope have?" All right. So, judges don't have an army. They don't have the power of appropriation, power of the purse. The only thing they have is the credibility and respect for the rule of law. And that... no, no, no. Well, what about judicial review? I mean, that's what we have. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that, is, that is the mission um, from Marbury v. Madison, uh, the third branch. Yeah. And what happens if the president defies an order of the Supreme Court? Which, which we saw in the 70s with Nixon and uh, the tapes. He, remember, I, he didn't actually defy it. That's the difference. But he came close. Yeah, but that's the difference. It, what would happen? Let's, let's just spin out this scenario. Let's say the President of the United States is accused of a crime, and the uh, Supreme Court has to rule on it and orders that the um, President turns over information, as happened in the Nixon case. And instead of turning over the tapes... The president says, no, come pry them out of my cold, dead fingers. I will never release these tapes to you. What does the court do? They, they don't control law enforcement. They can't, they, they can't send an army. They can't cut off funds for the president to do his or her job until they relent and give the tapes over. They don't have that authority. The only authority that the third branch has ultimately, ultimately, is the confidence of the people and their commitment to the rule of law. And once you undermine people's confidence that the, uh, the, that the rule of law is being fairly administered and that the people responsible for it are doing their job, then uh, you lose the power of the courts. Well, I, I, I agree with the concept. Um... This, of course, is what uh, has been called in uh, every first-year con law class a parade of horribles. And I, I know that it, it, that's not meant to be dismissive. It's just sort of playing It just out. sounded dismissive. It's just, uh, well, it's you. <laughs> it's playing out the idea to its, its extreme conclusion. To its ultimates. Yeah. But, um, and, and I think it's fair to say, look, at any given time, let, let's say 20, 15%, of uh, people who have business with the courts are, are just convinced it's rigged anyway. They, they've had a bad experience. You know, it's, it's often in family law or some financial thing that they don't like the judge. They don't like the result. They don't like the lawyers. They're just sour on the court. That, that, that's always going to be with us, okay? Some, you know, non-trivial number of people are just going to be cynical for no reason at all about the courts. But I think what you're pointing to is a greater danger because we have people uh, whose voices are supposed to count, uh, and whose voices are supposed to be heard saying for the first time, maybe not the first time in our history, but the first time in our lifetimes, in several generations of lifetimes, don't believe the people who do things that you don't like. That's basically the message. Yeah. Don't believe the people who do things that you don't like because they're wrong. Yeah. That is a dangerous message. Yeah, the message essentially from the President of the United States was this is an illegitimate decision because it was only issued because of um, bias towards uh, the former president against me. That's the only reason the, ju- the decision came down that way. And tried to get the public to believe that it wasn't based on the rule of law, when in fact uh, it was a very thoughtful and reasoned decision. And that's why the Chief Justice of the United States came out and said, uh, we don't have Obama judges, we don't have Trump judges, we don't have Clinton judges, we have judges. And it 
it's, it, it is not a controversial statement, but it's an important statement. Well, I, I think that's absolutely right. I was very proud and very happy that our Chief Justice did that. That is his role. Uh, it's unfortunate that we're at the point where the Chief Justice has to do things like that, but I'm glad that he rose to the occasion. But, you know, it takes all of us, even in our daily lives, everyday lives, uh, talking with people at the office, uh, maybe, uh, you know, the proverbial Thanksgiving family feud about politics, but it takes everybody to reinforce that message. Um, we need allies. Judges can't do these things on their own. We, we, we don't do it. We have a tradition of not doing it. And there's some good arguments that it wouldn't really be appropriate for us to do that. We can't go out on a talk show and defend a ruling. That's just not a right thing to do, and, and no judge would ever do that. But we need people in the world to say, okay, even if I disagree with this, that's the gold standard, is to have someone say, you know, I don't, dis I don't agree with that outcome, but the judge did everything right analytically in terms of uh, making the decision in a fair and impartial way, I can't say that it's, it's suspect because of bias. Yeah, yeah. Although, so now we've, we've been talking about claims of bias in our public courts. Uh, what about in our private courts? Uh, well, Jay-Z Jay just came out this week. Um, I, I don't like that term, by the way, private courts. It's private dispute resolution. <laughs> can we... Can we we agree not to call it a court. We can call it alternate dispute resolution, Your Honor. Or private dispute resolution. <laughs> it's an important thing. I'm not, I'm not yeah. gainsaying that, but yeah. it is not a court. A court is a public institution. So for, for those sorry, who aren't familiar. I interrupted you. <laughs> for the first time, you're sorry that you did that. This is good. Well, we're on the air. <laughs> uh, but for those who aren't familiar with uh, Jay-Z's allegations, uh, Jay-Z had sold his um, his Rokaware line to Iconics. Uh, Iconics um, uh, then brought an action against Jay-Z claiming that um, some some baseball caps that he had created with uh, a very similar name, I think Rock something, were uh, infringing on the trademark that he had sold to them. And uh, in and in this dispute, they had an arbitration clause, or in their agreement, they had an arbitration clause. And so now Jay-Z is claiming that the arbitration, and I'm a, I'm a full disclosure, I'm a AAA arbitrator, that the uh, AAA does not have enough African-American judges, or former judges, arbitrators, neutrals, who are qualified uh, for large and complex cases for him to get a fair selection a diverse panel to draw from uh, to choose the arbitrator in in this dispute well i, I uh, I'm, I'm so happy you brought that up i think this is really a, a very timely and absolutely fascinating issue for this reason um, lawyers who are listening will know um, and uh, others should know if they don't uh, we're living in an age now where as a result of a series of uh, cases that were decided by the supreme court uh, largely under the Federal Arbitration Act, which is a federal law that endorses, as a policy matter, taking cases out of court to go to arbitration. Uh, we're living in an age where an unprecedented number of consumer disputes, employment disputes, anything involving a contract with an arbitration clause are now being sent to these so-called private dispute resolution alternatives. Or private courts, if you want to just... Make it easier for people. I don't use that phrase, <laughs> but please. Be, I'll, I'll keep doing it. 
be as inaccurate as you would like. Uh, these, these private dispute uh, resolution things. So, and, and it's not a matter always of choice. Um, a lot of the litigation that judges like me see in federal court are people saying this case should be thrown out of court and sent to arbitration because the other side agreed to do that. So uh, Jay-Z's complaint, I think, takes on an extra nuance. I don't know if he wanted to be in arbitration or not. Let's assume that he didn't, okay? So he, he, he's lost his day in public court. He's lost his right to a jury trial under the Seventh Amendment, two of our most important dispute resolution mechanisms. Now he's at AAA, and I think uh, we looked at this before we uh, recorded. I think he found out at AAA that they have three, three African-American arbitrators available for this case out of a pool of 200 people, 200 other arbitrators. That's about, that's almost exactly 1% is African-American. So he now, now Jay-Z's out of court, out of a jury, in a forum that he may not have wanted to be there, and he's getting stuck with a judge who he thinks may have an unconscious bias problem. I don't think Jay-Z's saying, you know, they're overtly racist. I, at least I haven't seen that. I doubt he is. But there is a phenomenon of unconscious bias, and I think that's what he's raising. And it's a really fascinating issue. It, it almost raises the issue of whether arbitration might be inherently unfair in that kind of circumstance. So, so two thoughts. One is this may be a hard case in which to address all the issues that you raised, because I think they're fair issues that you've raised. For one thing, this is a billionaire who was in a commercial contract negotiation against another company. And one would think that if he didn't want to have an arbitration clause, he could have avoided having an arbitration clause. But you know, he agreed to it, freely agreed to it. That's a fair point. In, That's yeah. a fair point. So this is business to business where every right. side every side's lawyered up and they can yep. negotiate their terms. It's not like a take it or leave it deal where a lot of people on the consumer end or the employment end get stuck with an arbitration clause and they don't have the power to say no to it. That's a fair right. point. Right. The other thing is because it is business to business, um, even to the extent that there may be um, uh, unconscious biases, um, these are really two businesses. Um, Jay-Z may be uh, the, uh, the principal for the company, but you know he is one person in a much larger company. And so in this case, is it as concerning, is it as likely that unconscious racial biases would affect really resolution of a trademark dispute between two companies? And I think I think that's I think that's the essence of what unconscious bias is. It just comes up in ways that you're not aware. What you're saying is you wouldn't think in this fairly dry business to business lawsuit that unconscious bias would have a role. You just wouldn't think that. Um, but that in itself is almost a form of unconscious bias. That's that's what I think the whole concept is. And I actually think he has a point. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But what if he is the face of the company? I mean, what if he's their main witness? Uh, what if he stands to lose or gain the most as a result of the arbitration award? So what does the other company say? Does the other company say, look, well, if you think that the only way you can get a fair hearing is if um, you have an African-American arbitrator, uh, does that mean that, um, we can't get a, uh, that, that we can't get a fair hearing? Um, that the only kind of, you know, that, that, that race is going to taint the, the ultimate outcome of any decision here. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the, one of the harder questions is, uh, what, what does that mean that in order to assess whether someone has an unconscious bias, you have to look at their skin color, yeah. uh, because, because unconscious bias, uh, 
can can you know exist or not exist regardless of skin color. Well, I, I, you're right. I mean, everybody has it. There, yeah. Everybody has unconscious bias. It's different, but everybody yeah. has it, and that's why uh, our court, my court, Northern District of California, is now showing. We just started this a couple weeks ago. Now showing a video to all prospective jurors when they when they come in before they're sent to uh, individual courtrooms to be jurors, they're now all shown uh, a video on uh, being aware of unconscious bias or implicit bias. So, and we do that to very, we're not showing it just to white jurors, and we're not showing it just to male jurors. We're showing it to our entire jury pool, which right. is actually, by federal standards, is diverse. It's not as diverse in some ways as we, as we would like, but it's more diverse than other jury pools. So, yeah. I agree with you. And then, so that raises the question. When, when does a concern about unconscious bias sort of become um, a cynical opportunity for judge shopping? In other words, you, 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 you're looking for someone who might actually be biased in your favor. Right. I'm not saying Jay-Z is doing that. It just raises the issue. Yeah. 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 And you're not entitled to the judge of your liking. Yeah. <laughs> you're entitled to a fair and neutral judge, both in court and in ADR. Yeah. And that's always one of the challenges. You may find an important principle in, in the law to avoid prejudice, bias, uh, and yet on the other hand, once you've once you establish that, it can be used and it will be used to game the system by by some lawyers. But it's just it, inevitable. Doesn't it, it just doesn't it just feel wrong though? If these numbers are right, that there are three African American arbitrators out of this pool of two hundred available for this one case, doesn't it just feel wrong? There's yeah. something about that that's kind of weird. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I, I would agree. If you just look at the percentage of uh, African-American lawyers in the, in the profession, if you look at, you know, particularly the percentage of those lawyers who are involved in complex, large cases in the New York metropolitan area, uh, you would expect that anybody that, um, you know, whether it's a law firm or whether it's a uh, a private arbitration service or or whether it's the bench itself uh, would reflect something close to those percentages. Well, and I think, it's certainly much higher than 1%. I think the bench is a different situation, federal bench, because uh, the Obama administration was particularly good at diversifying the federal bench. And it, I think it's it's now more diverse than it ever has been mm-hmm. in its entire you know 200-year history. Let me ask you a question. So you said you work, you do, you're on the AAA panel. Yes. How do you get on the panel? Do you, do you just send in a letter? Or, uh, I mean. <laughs> well, they, you know, first you have to be able to. I, you. I think we know that. So how, how did you get on the panel? <laughs> so first you have to be able to um, identify what a bell curve is and draw a bell. So well, it's, a very, it. it's a very compelling and challenging test. No, there's actually, there's a lot of training that goes into it. So in order to become a AAA arbitrator, you have to. Uh, take a series of courses, pass exams, then you have to do um, you, you regular training. You, you, you say, you put your hand you wake up. up one day and say, I, I've, I've been a lawyer for 20 years. I'd like to explore alternative dispute resolution. So you contact them. That's right. And they tell you, here are all the things you need to do. Yeah, there are well, a whole maybe, maybe series a, of requirements. Well, then maybe it's a selection problem. I mean, maybe, maybe African-American lawyers are just not selecting to be arbitrators or they don't know they can select to be arbitrators. I mean... There, yeah, there, there could be a whole variety of reasons um, why there is a, uh, a, a what appears to be a, a unusually low proportion of African American uh, neutrals 
in that in that category in that jurisdiction who can handle these sorts of disputes and i think it is important for us to figure out why um and so i think you know it, it raises a, a valuable question whether or not it's a justification for um, being able to get out of the arbitration provisions of this contract is a is a very different question and that'll be decided by a judge in the new york supreme court is that, um, is, coming that up. What, is that what jay-z is trying to do yeah yeah he's not just trying to change the arbitrators he's trying to get out of arbitration yeah totally. he's trying to get out well the, it provides for a triple a arbitration and he wants to get out of triple a arbitration so in california so our, the enforceability of arbitration clauses is based on the law of the state that governs the contract so mm-hmm. i see california generally not always but generally so in California, you'd have to show that the clause was procedurally and substantively unconscionable. Those are just complex words for meaning. They're just so unfair to the person who doesn't want to go to arbitration that it's just not right to shove arbitration down their throat. Uh, just, you know, without knowing the details or any of the legal arguments, I think it would be a hard road to hoe to say uh, lack of uh, racial and ethnicity diversity alone inherently means the arbitration would be unconscionable. I think that's tough. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think that would fly, but I don't, you know, maybe there are reasons why it would. Yeah. No, I mean, again, without being one of the lawyers in the case and having seen the facts, I couldn't, I couldn't assess. All I could say though, is that it is, it raises an important issue. Um, the question is, is this the right case uh, to present that issue? And why? Well, because it's a billionaire and, and baseball caps. Yeah, right, because it, it is a commercial enterprise. It's a business, not an individual. Mm-hmm. And it is um, uh, a, a, a purely commercial type of dispute. It's a, it's a, a trademark dispute and a licensing dispute. Mm-hmm. Jeff, the holidays are coming up. Yes. Can I say uh, happy holidays to you? You're allowed to. <laughs> not only can you say happy holidays, you can actually give me a gift this time. All right, I don't have to sit in your lap again <laughs> and call you Santa, do I? I... Yeah, well, ten years know. of that seems to have been enough, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. You're still not getting that pony. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the um, but but this year, uh, I, so here's here's my challenge this year. You have a challenge. It's yes. the holidays. They're not meant to be challenged. <laughs> well, to I'm, be uh, a happy time. Well, I'm trying to decide what I get for the family, and and I'm looking at both. Um, Alexa and some of these other in-home devices. I think it's good. The Amazon X, oh. Echo or oh, okay. Siri. Sure. And there are, you know, uh, for me, I think this is one of those pivotal moments because people will choose a tribe. It used to be that if you picked Apple or at the time it was IBM, uh, the cold Microsoft. Intel. Yeah. yeah. But it was it was really uh, Apple versus Betamax Microsoft. Versus, uh, Whatever the VHS. VHS. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No. And then once you once you lock in, all of the programs that you want, like your you know your smart devices and your home and everything else, will be likely geared to one or the other. Yeah. And so you know this is this is an important moment. You know, you have to choose wisely. Well, your your uh, your one percenter gift giving dilemma is of course interesting. It it sparks to my mind uh, <laughs> a number of interesting issues, and that is. Um, I mean, just for example, uh, at the moment, it really is just two choices. Uh, yeah, maybe three. Uh, what's the third one? So there's, there's Google, there's Apple, uh, Amazon, yeah. Apple. And, all right, three. Yeah, three. Okay, there are three. 
Uh, you know, there's been a lot in the news recently about the antitrust aspects of technology. Now, mm-hmm. uh, but those are for other people uh, in the world of antitrust law to develop. But you know, it is it is it is uh, potentially of concern that when we get to these cutting edge uh, technologies, we generally don't have the degree of choice that you would think. Now, you might say on the one hand, well, it's all new, and there just aren't enough people out there who can push the push the line forward. Uh, on the other hand, I you know I think. Uh, a question can be asked: well, Why? Why is it always just two or three options? Yeah, yeah. Why don't we have more than that? Yeah. So, so that that's one issue. I think the other issue is, uh, you know, there are a lot of privacy concerns. Now, I know your threshold is a little bit lower than other folks, uh, and uh, you're you're more comfortable living out in a public space. But I mean, do you do you do you really want to have all that home communication? Access by a third party. I'm not. I mean, that they do. They have to do that. They, they, the third party accesses it. It's not mm-hmm. controversial to say that. But do you really want that? Um, yeah. Well, that is one of the big questions: is what are the privacy controls on each one of these? And I think we're going to see more of that with all new technologies. And people will not only look at well, what is the price point on this, or what is the, you know, how how broadly integrated is it into the system? Is like, is it going to be around for a while? Uh, they're also going to be looking at how well will it protect my privacy? So just as we look at, you know, what's you know, consumer reports, they say, uh, how long does this thing last? Is it well built? Is it a good price? All those other factors. I think we're going to start seeing consumer reports and consumers themselves making decisions based on how intrusive is this into my privacy? Well, I, I, I hope that's right. I think that might be right. It's certainly true in Europe. Uh, Europeans have been, um, in the view of many, and I, and I think persuasively, a little more conscious and maybe um, uh, a little more proactive on, on privacy protections than we have in this country. But the problem is, uh, the situation is you've had this wonderful new technology, maybe just two or three suppliers, all of whom have the same privacy policy, in other words, um, let's assume they don't grant very much collectively. They just, uh, not, not through coordinated conduct or conspiracy, I'm not saying that at all, but they just don't. So you really, your option is you just forego the good. You don't use it if you don't like the privacy because you don't have an alternative. So that's a tough road to hoe. I mean, that's, you, you're basically saying, okay, I do have privacy concerns. I have to give them all up for any one of these issues, maybe. So I guess I can't use the technology. Yeah, that's no. kind of the antitrust issue, huh. you know. Right. No, I mean part of the challenge is these things will become integrated into our lives. You will be at a competitive disadvantage and a lifestyle disadvantage if you uh, if you don't have one. And you know, you say right now, well, this is a one percenter issue, but uh, that was true of personal computers. That was true of smartphones. I remember when Blackberries first came out, and people were like, oh, wow, that's going to ruin my life. I don't want to have a Blackberry. People will be able to reach me all the time, and you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't want to have to carry this thing in my pocket all day long. Um, remember, people wore them in holsters, you know, and um, and then now you can't imagine living without a smartphone. Yeah. I mean, you really can't. No, well, and, it's not a phone; it's a computer. Really, it's a smart. It's a computer. It's right. a handheld computer that happens to have a phone function on it. Right. It's not real. I mean, I bet if you look at your day. Yeah. Your time of actually using that, your device as an, as a, for f- traditional phone services, is probably a fraction of oh. your texting, your internet <laughs> use, uh, all those weird apps you have, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll just say I have, I have three kids between the ages of 
uh, you know, 20 and 26. And I think they use their phones as phones 0% of yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? When was the last time any of your kids actually answered a call? That's... Never. <laughs> I'll answer that for you because mine don't. Never. Yeah, well, that's because it's you that they don't answer. But you know, <laughs> but I mask my number. Even that, doesn't. even that, yeah. even that won't work. Yeah. Right. It just says it's not dead when I, when I call. But yeah. just as just as those are ubiquitous, um, so will these um, these these assistants it's, it's in our homes. Point that I mean, I do remember I, I was uh, in in an undergrad going on to grad school right when computers became realistic. Yeah. To have at home, this was like computers, you know, in quotes, because we were using floppy disks and trying to connect a phone line. I mean, it was ridiculously primitive. Yes. But uh, being a self-supporting student as I was, I couldn't afford any of that. You know, so okay. very few of my peers could. So, yeah. you know, to your point, only a couple of people had them. And, you know, we all hated them. Yeah. <laughs> we were still typing on typewriters with a whiteout and, you know, spilling it everywhere. Yeah. And two in the morning, have to do redo a whole 20 pages because you screwed up the lines. And, you know, you remember all that. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, they had a serious competitive advantage. They did. And over time, uh, everyone migrated in that direction. And I, I see the same things happening here. So we've got... Uh, you know, it sounds like just a happy little Christmas question, which is, well, which kind are you going to get? But it actually is a whole series of choices about where we're taking our society. And I think I think the holiday message is just be reflective. Yeah. Think Think about what you're doing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Happy Hanukkah. Can I say that? You can say happy Hanukkah. It's, uh, you know, it it, it is not a war on Christmas to say that to somebody who's Jewish. Is that right? Yes, and and Merry Christmas to you, Jim Donato. Well, thank you. All right, that's our show. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays.